Hennepin Healthcare, a network of neighborhood clinics, specialty care centers, hospital, and Minnesota's level one adult and pediatric trauma center, presents Healthy Matters. As always, consult your physician if you have health concerns. Here's Denny Long with Hennepin Healthcare Internal Medicine Physician, Dr. David Hilden. Yes, indeed. Good morning. Welcome to this edition of uh, Healthy Matters on this Sunday morning, January 5th. And good morning to you, Dr. Hilden. You, you gave us kind of a road report, didn't you? I know. I came in and, you know, I drive a, a Mini Cooper, which weighs about two pounds, four ounces. <laughs> and I, it was treacherous. Now, is walking dangerous now, too? Uh, it's getting there. It's uh. sort of a little um, half sleet, half rain, ha- half snow that makes for one and a half, I know. But I don't know. It's, it's, that, it's a wintry mix. But it, but you know I'm not I'm not like I'm not Lynch here but you know right. I, uh, but but it's a it, it's it's mild but it's kind of sleety light freezing rain is what the weather folks are calling it now so that could be treacherous driving and walking so be, please be advised and uh, before we get underway and I have mentioned a couple of times what the topic will be today and we certainly welcome your phone calls and text messages but um, there is an excellent article about Dr Hilden you didn't know I was going to say this I didn't. Uh, and Healthy Matters, and the current issue of Minnesota Good Age magazine. You're on the cover. You made the cover. Oh, jeez. It's know, not Rolling could, Stone, but um, it's... it's... <laughs> and the funny thing, the camera couldn't fix it. Couldn't fix what you I know, actually look like. This, that's, a great, that's a great tribute and, and well-deserved. Congratulations. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, yeah I, uh, um, I couldn't... I, the, the, the author is uh, Susan Schaefer. She's a wonderful um, uh, journalist. And um, Sarah Jackson edits the Minnesota Good Age, and they... they uh, they asked me to do this piece, and I said, really, nobody wants to hear about me. No, and she said, no, 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 we do. We do. You have a lot of listeners. And so, so it, uh, it's a little bit more than you ever wanted to know about me. <laughs> my, my, my wife is rolling her eyes probably even now. It's your worst critic, right? <laughs> no, no, she comes out looking pretty good, though. Really? Yeah, I sound kind of whipped. <laughs> <laughs> That's a medical term. Yeah. No, so oh, I I do appreciate that. Yeah, so if you can get that Minnesota Good Age either online or, or it, all over the metro area, all over the state. No, I that's think. great. And as I said, it, it is well-deserved. Uh, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about diabetes and things related to diabetes. Um, I have my uh, colleague, Dr. Laura Lefebvre, in the studio. Hi, Laura. Good morning, Dave. Okay, good. We got it all squared away there. <laughs> good to have you back. Um, Laura and I go way back. I used to use the term old friends, but then I thought once you get to a certain age, you don't want to say old long, long friends. time friends. <laughs> right. We've been long time friends. We did sure. residency together. What was that, twenty years ago, eighteen years ago? And you Almost. became an endocrinologist. Correct. Which is a smart person. So tell me, tell our listeners, what does an endocrinologist do? An endocrinologist is an internist, which you are, Dave. Mm. So a person who has trained in internal medicine, which is the study of all the internal organs, but an endocrinologist then specializes within the glandular system. So we study and learn about all the disorders of the of the uh, of the hormones in our bodies, and so uh, we learn how to diagnose and treat uh, people with hormone problems. And the biggest problem that we see is diabetes because that is due to a problem with the hormone insulin. Although we also uh, see people for a lot of other hormone problems such as thyroid disease, adrenal disease, pituitary, gonadal disease as well. Hormones. I bet people, you know, I, I knew that, but I didn't know it before I went into medicine that that's what endocrinology is. It's all about the gland. Is that what a gland does? What's a gland? 
a gland is something that produces hormones. So you, when we when we talk about glands, often people talk about they might come in because they have swollen glands, and that's something that is is uh, a, you know a common complaint in um, in when people when doctors see patients in clinic. They're usually talking about their lymph nodes, which is part of your immune like system. Not a gland, right? So glands are confusing because glands broadly can include a lot of things. We focus on the the glands that produce hormones. And those include the pancreas, the thyroid gland in the neck, the adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys, the liver some functions somewhat as a gland. So and when you went into med school, did you say, I want to be a gland no, doctor? No, not at all. I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell us the scoop on then. Um, we're going to talk mostly today. Actually, um, just a one to sidelight. That's how my brain works. Um, I thought about being an endocrinologist back in when I was doing my residency at yes. the same time as you because you get to see patients over time and you get to know your patients. Yes, that's true. That's one of the greatest things about this specialty is that it's, 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 it's narrow, but it's also broad because we, we do take care of patients with diabetes, and that means that we get to see patients over time, sometimes from their diagnosis, really for the rest of their life. Um, so we have the ability to um, help patients manage their what's, what is a chronic disease. But we also have the opportunity to do a lot of consultations on patients who we may not see more than one or two or three times, but it, we're, we're responsible for kind of working up or looking for rarer things that, that come along. So uh, so it's really a great blend. It is a great blend. Uh, we do have a shortage of endocrinologists. So do if, we? if there's anybody in medical training or considering medical training, then you know, consider it. It's a wonderful specialty. I didn't know that there's a shortage. So we've yeah. just hired a new one, Dr. Estrada, right? Correct. I, I'm going to say this. Um, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, Are we? your division at Hennepin is the only one that is all women. That is correct. Is that true? That is correct. So, so your doctors, your nurse practitioners. That's correct. We, we we do have a medical assistant who is a male. So we, one guy, yeah, no. <laughs> this, but everybody else is female, and it's uh, it's quite a powerful group. It is. I love that. It's headed by Dr. Lisa Fish she, uh, and Dr. Lafave, Dr. Estrada, Dr. Bumalam. Mm-hmm. I got to get Sarah's name right. Yep. And all your educators. Yep. Dr. Sarah Kempinen. Dr. Sarah Kempinen. Kathy O'Brien, and we have a new physician assistant starting in March as well. Wow, so that's that's incredible, uh, um, and, and well, it shouldn't be incredible, but it is, you know, because it's the only one. So I, that's just a little bit of a a sidelight um, there. Now, Laura, you where'd you come from? You I know you did residency with me. You were at Park Nicollet for a while. Yeah, I was a resident at Hennepin County in two thousand one to two thousand four. So then, she's just a kid because I was a year before that. <laughs> and then I was at the University of Minnesota for my endocrine fellowship until two thousand seven, and then I went to work for Park Nicollet. Clinic. Actually, I was at the VA for a year, which was a wonderful experience. Oh, I didn't as well. know you were at the VA. I was at the VA doing a combination of clinical uh, care and research. And then I went to Park Nicollet Clinic, where I worked for almost 11 years. And I came back to Hennepin in March of 2018. And so, I'm ecstatic to be there. Yeah, I remember having breakfast with uh, Dr. Lafave um, when she was uh, thinking, you know, when we were thinking about this this move, and and um, I was so excited when I heard that she was going to come back to Hennepin. And all right, so that's about you. Let's talk about diabetes. Um, first of all, there's several types of it. Could you just give us sort of the basics, diabetes 101? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
you know, as we talked about, one of the, the, the underlying problem that develops when people have diabetes. Well, first of all, I, I, was, I just wanted to kind of go back to what diabetes means. So diabetes is, comes from a Greek word for siphon. And so the reason that the, the word is, the, the reason it's called diabetes is because there, there are different types of diabetes. What we're talking about today is diabetes mellitus, which is really means sweet urine or sweet, sweet, sweetness in um, fluid. And so uh, in the condition of diabetes, what happens is that sugar comes out in your urine and you make a lot of urine. So there are other types of diabetes that exist, such as diabetes insipidus, which is something completely different. Um, but diabetes mellitus is a problem where you have too much sugar in your bloodstream and it has to come out so it comes out through your urine. Hence the name. Hence the name, right. Before you move on, is it true that that's how they used to diagnose diabetes? Correct. So before you could, before we could test blood sugar easily by just poking a finger um, or even measuring it in the bloodstream with, you know, blood testing, um, it had to be detected by the, by looking for and tasting you had to urine. taste the urine. I mean, I did you put – I mean, well, this isn't how we do it. We don't taste <laughs> anyone's – if your diabetes doctor is no. tasting your urine – That's I'd, a red flag. I'd start so, looking yeah. for someone else. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so it's sweet urine. Okay. Sweet urine. So um, broadly, there really are two main categories of diabetes. And I think the one that we end up uh, seeing a lot – of in clinic, as far as patients are concerned, when when we are endocrinologists, is type one diabetes. But most people have type two diabetes. So you know, in this country, about of all the people who have diabetes, which is about thirty million Americans, uh, about four percent of them have type one diabetes. So a very very small percentage of people with diabetes have type one. Uh, type one diabetes is typically what used to be called juvenile onset diabetes. Um, and it's a problem where the body stops producing the hormone insulin. And so patients with type 1 diabetes automatically have to take insulin injections, otherwise they die. Um, and so that is what you maybe think of as a very severe form of diabetes. Um, and you see a lot of that because I, I know why. If I have a patient with type 1 diabetes, I always refer them to an endocrinologist. Most patients who have type 1 diabetes are followed by endocrinologists, either pediatric endocrinologists, ones who take care of kids, and then adult endocrinologists. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We're talking diabetes with Dr. Laura Lefebvre, endocrinologist from Hennepin Healthcare. We already have a screen full of text messages, so we'll be getting to your calls and texts shortly. Absolutely. In fact, it's the same number if you want to call in your question or send it via text, 651-989-9226. Again, 651-989-9226. We've cleared the lines if you want to call it in or text it in. We'll pick up on those uh, questions when we come back. Light freezing rain here in the Twin Cities. Uh, We expect uh, otherwise mostly cloudy skies, but then gradually becoming sunny. That's the prediction. Highs near 38. Right now, though, that light freezing rain, be careful out there. Our WCCO temperature reading 30. And welcome back to Healthy Matters. We're talking about diabetes and welcoming your questions via phone or text. Same number, 651-989-9226. Here again is Dr. Hilton. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Just before we get into uh, um, our topic of diabetes, a couple of housekeeping things. I wanted to just acknowledge this is the 573rd Healthy Matters show, which makes it the first show of our 12th year. 
Wow. Where did, we've been on you this 11 years. You have been trying for 10 years to get rid of me, Denny. No, no, And no, I keep no, no. showing up in downtown. This is the highlight of my week. <laughs> it is literally our 573rd hour that we are now on the air. So I just wanted to say that. Secondly, is something a little more closer to home. Um, our dermatology group at Hennepin is a great group of dermatologists. They offer all kinds of skin care, both um, uh, medical and uh, cosmetic dermatology and so I'm, they've got all kinds of um, um, access, so I want to alert you to them. Um, if you want to get a hold of our dermatologist, go to hennepinhealthcare.org. And here, get this out. Check this out. DermJan2020, D-E-R-M-J-A-N 2020, hennepinhealthcare.org slash DermJan2020. Back to diabetes with Dr. Lefebvre. So you told us about type 1. Right. What's the rest of it? Type 2. So the bigger category of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, and that is uh, what accounts for most diabetes in this country. Um, it's an interesting thing because there are a lot. There are probably lots of forms of type 2 diabetes. Um, so when, when somebody um, is diagnosed with diabetes, there's, there's often a little bit of, of confusion or obviously dismay when people receive that diagnosis. Um, it, it's interesting how over time we've sort of figured out that there's probably more than just one clear-cut cause for type 2 diabetes. Um, but uh, regardless, the, the, the end result is, is the same, which is the same problem where, where the blood sugar gets too high and that starts to cause problems and damage to different organ systems and blood vessels. Again, is it insulin-related? It is. So in people who have type 2 diabetes, the initial problem is that they become resistant to insulin. So they make, unlike the people with type 1 diabetes who, remember, do not make insulin at all, people with type 2 become resistant to insulin. So they have to produce more insulin in order to bring or prevent the blood sugars from getting too high. So if you measure insulin levels in people who are pre have pre-pre-diabetes, they, they are high because they are trying to kind of overcome this, this resistance to that hormone. What does insulin do? Why is it so important? It's important for extracting energy from what we eat. Mm. So when you eat anything, it, it goes into your gut, and insulin's job is to then extract the fuel from that, sh- that food or those nutrients and deliver it to all your cells so that your body can work. So That's like the best important. explanation of what insulin does. I think we went to about a two weeks of lecture to learn what insulin does in med school. Well, or, is, I don't know if I – that was a good way to do it. This it is extract, the cliff note version. That's Dave. the cliff note version. Gosh, I wish I would have had the cliff note version back in med school. <laughs> all right. So that's type 2 and that's much more common you say. Much more common. And I guess the important thing about it is that it's not always treated with insulin. In fact, most of the time it's not. And there's a lot of opportunity to treat it, especially in the early stages or in the pre-diabetes stage, which we can talk about mm-hmm. too, uh, with dietary changes, with exercise, with some lifestyle changes. There's also a plethora of oral medicines and injection medicines um, that kind of come way before insulin. I do want to talk about some of the meds because if anyone who turns on their TV sees ads constantly for medications, a lot of, a lot of them are some of the newer diabetes medicines. That's one. It's, it's always the rheumatology meds, cancer meds, and diabetes meds. You see those a lot on TV. You do, and I think if you watch any of them, you probably would be very scared to take any of them because sometimes it feels like all of the warnings and everything yep. can be quite overwhelming, and I think that's where 
it gets a little bit uh, confusing for people, for patients to sort of sort out what are the, you know, what are the right uh, medications for me to to take for my diabetes. If we have time later in the show, we'll get to some of those medications. Yep. Um, and I do want to get to the phone, so stay to, stay with us for a few more minutes, and we'll do that. But I want to talk about the term you brought up a little bit earlier called pre-diabetes. What is that, and should I be worried? Sure, good question. Well, it depends on your risk factors, Dave. Oh gosh. Uh, actually, I think the we should all be worried about pre-diabetes. This is a tremendous. Uh, there's there's a, a, probably a third of Americans have prediabetes and may not even know it. And it turns out that we're not always uh, so good as as healthcare professionals as uh, at letting patients know when they have prediabetes. So in fact, only about 11% of people who have prediabetes know that they have it, meaning they they've been tested for it, but they haven't really been mm. informed that that's what they have. It's a relatively new term, isn't it? I mean, 10 yeah. years ago, we weren't using that. We were using like yeah. glucose intolerance or something. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion with the definitions. Yeah. Pre-diabetes is simply a state before you develop diabetes. Uh, you can kind of think of diabetes as a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So you have absolutely normal use of insulin and, and glucose, and then you have uh, pathologic or diagnostic uh criteria or testing that you can do to establish that you have diabetes. We can talk about those in specifics if that's helpful. But there's this range in between where blood tests will show that you've got enough abnormal levels of insulin and glucose in your sugar in your body that you're kind of on the potentially on the road to getting diabetes. The reason where the where the numbers get assigned is where we establish that people are going to see problems from these higher blood sugars. So when you have prediabetes, your blood sugar is not high enough to, to meet the, the diagnosis of diabetes, but it's high enough that it's probably starting to cause some problems in the small blood vessels in your body. And that's where we set the, the definition. Yeah, somebody had to put numbers Correct. somewhere. Well, so right. what are the numbers? So. If you have a fasting blood sugar, so if you go to your doctor and you have, and you're, it's always good in general if it's possible to go to see your, when you go see your doctor or your, or your clinician to be fasting if possible so that you can do some labs. If, a fa- if your fasting blood sugar is under 100, that is normal. That's considered normal. If it's between 100 and 125, that is in the range of prediabetes. And if it's 126 or over, that means diabetes. However, it needs to be repeated at least once to really make a diagnosis. So if you go in once and your fasting blood sugar is 102 and you've kind of just bumped over the edge of, of normal, your doctor or clinician should definitely repeat that. And have on a different day, in. not right then. Correct, on a different day. Uh, so you really need two tests to establish the diagnosis of prediabetes or diabetes. All right, we're going to talk a lot more about that. And we're going to talk more about testing for diabetes. We're going to talk about uh, um, uh, what some of the numbers mean, and, uh, and uh, we'll do that um, after the break. I'm going to talk a little bit more. Um, I think, Denny, we can wait for the phone. Should we wait for the phone calls till yeah. after the break? Okay, I'll t- I'm going to take a text message because we just have a minute here. Um, what about, and this is about A1C, we're yep. still about testing. Somebody texted in and said, I'm 74 and I've been diabetic since 2005. My A1C is uh, 7.1. What's an A1C? Great question. I'm glad you asked. 
So the A1C is a measure of diabetes control. And what it is is it's a percentage. And so it it gives a reflection of a person's average blood sugar over the previous two to three months. So if you walk into your doctor's office, they test your A1C and it's high, that's going to suggest that you have diabetes. So it can be used as also a diagnostic tool. So an A1C that's under 5.7% means you do not have diabetes. If it's between 5.7 and 6.5, that again is in that pre-diabetes range. So that correlates to that fasting blood sugar of between 100 and 125. And if it's over 6.5, that is diagnostic of diabetes. So that same texter has a question about why their blood sugars go up when they have coffee. And we're going to get to that after the break. Great. Good deal. 651-989-9226. That's the phone number and the text number. Light freezing rain in the Twin Cities from News Talk A3OWCCO. Temp is 30. Welcome back to Healthy Matters. We're talking about diabetes today, taking your phone calls and your text messages. Uh, 651-989-9226 is the number for both. Here again is Dr. Hilden. Okay, we're talking with Dr. Laura LaFave, endocrinologist at Hennepin Healthcare. Her practice is right here in downtown Minneapolis at the Spiffy Clinic and Specialty Center on 8th and Park um, with convenient underground parking and all that. But who really cares about that? What you, we don't care about the parking in the Spiffy building. We care that it's the greatest group of caregivers that you're going to find for your, um, your endocrine uh, care. Uh, I'll give you the phone number and how to get a hold of Dr. LaFave. Get a pencil ready because I'll do it later in the show as well. But you can always go to hennepinhealthcare.org, hennepinhealthcare.org, and just look, just search for her or the endocrine clinic. Or the phone number, as always, to make an appointment is 612-873-MY-MD, 612-873-6963. And... And if you'll forgive me, one last little sidelight. I have got to meet a 93-year-old Healthy Matters listener this past week. Her name is Rayola. I'm not going to say more about that, but other than to say thinking of you, Rayola, I appreciate you listening to the show. She's a loyal listener to the program, and uh, it was so great to get to meet you. Okay, now back to the second half of that previous text where this uh, caller said, I have an A1C of 7.1%. The other part of that person texts Dr. Lefebvre says, why does coffee raise my blood sugar? I can be 69 to 73 when I get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee with equal and non-dairy creamer, and it'll go to 220. That's the same person who had the A1C of 7.1. Right. That's a great question. Uh, first of all, your A1C of 7.1 is quite good. That's a really, really good A1C. Um, the technical goal usually is to have the A1C under 7 but you're pretty close, and you may have that adjusted a bit depending on your age or your other illnesses or medicines that you take. Um, one of the Probably one of the reasons that your blood sugar goes up so high after drinking coffee is because of the caffeine. The caffeine can actually raise your blood sugar. Oh, good grief. That's one more. Re- I thought, no. can- oh, gosh, no, it was it's good okay. for you. You can still drink it. Can so, I? Oh, yeah. good. So the other, <laughs> the other thing is that we know is that um, – There's multiple studies now showing that moderate coffee consumption is helpful for type 2 diabetes, uh, even in prevention. So, Dave, you're okay. I have to look at my friends to see which of my vices I can continue with. Right, right. Coffee's okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The non-dairy creamer may play a part as well. There's minimal amount of uh, carbohydrate in in non-dairy creamer. One of the interesting things about diabetes is that 
the first, when you start out with a normal blood sugar in the morning, it tends to be that the first thing that you eat or drink has a bigger impact on your blood sugar than something would later in the day. So the first meal of the day we call breakfast. We're breaking a fast. So that's the you go the longest period of time overnight when you when you don't eat. That is if you're not an overnight eater. Um, and so there's a lot of signals and hormones and things that are kind of all revving up in the morning that makes us very sensitive to things that will raise the blood sugar. And so that's why a cup of coffee with creamer in it is probably going to raise it up. I, I wouldn't be too terribly worried about it. Um, you might try an experiment and do, you know, like decaffeinated coffee if you can stand that or just eliminate the dairy, the non-dairy creamer and see if that makes a difference if it bothers you. Uh, but your blood sugar is pretty low in the morning, 69 to 73. So I would just say if you are taking medication for the, for your diabetes, you might want to look at maybe ratcheting back a little bit on medicine just to kind of not be quite so low in the morning. All right, let's go to the phones. I believe Pat and Shorvey have been waiting the longest. Thank you, Pat. What is your question? Good morning. Great information. Uh, thank you so much. My question is, uh, two years in a row, I've had the A1C test, and two years in a row, my results were six. And if I'm on this road or increasing my risk to be not just pre-diabetic, but actually get diabetes, what can someone do who's pre-diabetic? Can you just reduce sugar, or is this a road that you can't reverse? That is a great question, Pat. Thank you. For Amen to that, Pat. That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> Thank you for calling with that. Um, and first thing I would say is that uh, good for you for com- following up with it and for continuing to pay attention to this. Um, the So a lot of things are going to determine what's going to happen with uh, when you're in this pre-diabetes range. Part of it are some of it is things that you can't control. So that we there is definitely some genetic components to glucose metabolism or the way our bodies kind of handle sugar. And so, you know, you can't really do anything about those sort of genetic components of it. So if you have, you know, family members, especially first degree relatives with di- with diabetes, you're just going to it just ends up or you're from a, a high risk ethnic group or you had a history of gestational diabetes or diabetes in pregnancy or a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which uh, a lot of women have. Oh, really, it's only women who have it. Um, Those things are going to kind of set you up for having a higher likelihood that your your prediabetes is going to be more likely to progress to diabetes. Um, That being said, there was just a, a, a landmark study that came out when Dave and I were residents um, that was looking at the diabetes, what was called the Diabetes Prevention Program. And this is where they, they took lots and lots of people all over the world who had uh, prediabetes. So even though we weren't really calling it prediabetes in those days, these were people who had numbers consistent with those numbers we were talking about earlier in the show. And they randomized people and they had them either try pretty aggressive lifestyle interventions. So that was changing their diet, having a lot of exercise intervention, having a lot of guidance on that. And then they also treated some of the people with a medication called metformin, which is an old diabetes drug that we have used for decades and is still really the mainstay of treatment for diabetes today. Um, And what they found is that people who did the lifestyle intervention were actually slightly more likely to not progress to diabetes. So um, so we, we knew from that that lifestyle intervention really is very, very potent. 
Now, that kind of depends on where you're starting, right? Because if you are somebody who is exercising for 30 to 60 minutes, five days a week, and you are eating a very healthy, especially kind of like a Mediterranean diet, you're not going to have a ton of room to improve on that insofar as as prevention. Um, now, Eating one extra kale salad isn't going to fix Probably that. not in that yeah. case. On the other hand, if you haven't been active, if you have not, if you're, if you are at a point where you have not been, you've had a pretty sedentary life and you're eating a diet that is quite high in carbohydrates, sugar, processed sugar, simple carbohydrates, then there's probably quite a bit that you could do that would, would, would prevent uh, progression for you. The fact that it's stable over a year is heartening. Um, that's very good. And um, I think, you know, definitely at this point, if, if you, you know, working with like a diabetes nutritionist and, um, and looking at kind of the exercise part of this would probably be helpful. Again, Pat, I don't know what, 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 at what point you are with any of that. But I like what you said about the nutritionist thing. Most of us don't know anything about what right. we eat or we know we think we do. Right. But I always tell people stay away from all those simple white foods, the pasta and white bread and white potatoes, and try to eat like you said a Mediterranean diet. But we're not all we all don't really know that. So it, yeah. I think that's a really good advice. Do you put people on metformin then uh, with d- pre-diabetes? It depends. It really depends. Um, it in if patients are very high risk for development or progression. Or um, let's say, for example, they've made all these changes and they're still rising. Let's say their A1C rises a couple of uh, tenths of a percentage point despite their best efforts. Or they're particularly very concerned about it, then I would certainly use metformin. Metformin has the added benefit of causing a little bit of weight loss. And so weight loss can also is also pretty important in patients who have high BMIs, high body mass indices. So if you know you're in the overweight or obese category, we do know that weight loss is going to help lower your risk for progression to diabetes. All right, we're going to get to you, uh, Deborah and Leonard, on the phone in just a minute. Um, uh, before we do that, I'm going to ask Dr. Lefebvre another question here. Um, Laura, this is about alcohol and diabetes. It says from the text line, I am an EMT, emergency medical technician, and I'm wondering, does alcohol consumption tend to raise or lower blood sugar? It can do both. So just to make it confusing, uh, that's and I'm sure as an EMT you may see this in a sort of scary and um, precipitous way. Um, alcohol can can both raise blood sugar and lower it, and so people with diabetes need to be very careful when they are um, enjoying alcohol because. Uh, for one thing, it should always be consumed with food. Now, this is particularly um, important for, for, for people who take insulin. So um, uh, uh, for people who are treated with, let's say, metformin for their type 2 diabetes, uh, probably moderate consumption of alcohol is reasonable and not going to profoundly affect blood sugar control. Uh, But when your body doesn't make any insulin, so for example, for the people with the type 1 diabetes we talked about, um, alcohol can really be very kind of unpredictable and a little bit scary in terms of how it can can, uh, both raise and then down the line lower the blood sugar. So a a common thing would be somebody who um, has several drinks in the evening, particularly we know that with um, hard alcohol like um, 
not talking about beer or wine, but with um, liquor, that the blood sugar can then go low in the middle of the night. And that's something that is, uh, can be quite dangerous. Okay, I think we're going to take a break. Then we're going to get back to the phones. We're talking to Laura LaFave, endocrinologist, about diabetes. If you want to get a hold of her or see her in clinic or any of her colleagues, the phone number is 612-619-6963. And get a pencil. I'll repeat it one more time at the end of the show. Very good. We'll take this break and be right back. Our number is 651-989-9226. In the uh, Twin Cities, light freezing rain. Our CCO temperature reading 30. And good morning. Welcome back to Healthy Matters. We're talking about diabetes today, welcoming your phone calls and text messages. We have a bunch of both. 651-989-9226. That number applies to both. Back to the phones we go. Deborah has been waiting there in St. Paul with a question. Deborah, thank you. What is your question? Well, it was about um, what is prediabetes, but um, she already addressed that. And But I would like to know a little bit more about... Um, the effect of diet or if there's any books or classes that I could, you know, access that would really be, she would recommend because then I want to know how other than just the general terms of, yeah, I should exercise and eat right. How can I really know what are some of the top things that really make a difference with prediabetes? That's a great, great question, Deborah. Um, Thank you for calling. And I'm glad that you asked. Um, I think that one of the I think that the the best starting point is to let me just clarify. Can we can we clarify with you? Do you have di- prediabetes or? Well, I um, I don't know. I think that I only had the, the one test. Like I'm glad you said there's like two different things. And so um, about a year ago or so, when I was doing my regular checkup, she I have a great doctor, and she addressed it with me, and she said, you know, you should maybe go to some classes or something because. Um, I'm just concerned and plus with your levels of cholesterol and stuff being, you know, and I do need to lose some weight. And so there's all these different things that she was adding up as well as, you know, probably, yes, I had the blood tests and things that, um, uh, of course I don't have that in front of me now, but it seemed like all of those things were adding up to, she wanted to head this off at the pass. Right. And did you, were you able to attend any classes? I wasn't because when I tried to look online, the websites were, the links were out of date and the classes had already expired. Oh dear, that's not as helpful. So um, so I would say that generally speaking, um, I would get back in touch with your doctor about about getting referred to a, a diabetes class. There, there's, there's a lot of information online. Um, I would say that probably the most some of the most reliable sites that you could always go to is the American Diabetes Association. They have a lot of patient information, both about prediabetes and diabetes, with a lot of specifics about, you know, um, time of, ex- you know, t- uh, how much exercise you should be trying to get per week, a lot about some basic nutrition things that would be like a good starting point. But I also, and the other one that has good, good, uh, good information is the Mayo Clinic website. Um, but I do think there's almost nothing that that substitutes for in person. And one of the things about uh, diabetes or prediabetes classes that are helpful is that there's often there are often other people there. So we tend to kind of address this with with groups of people, and that can actually be very beneficial to to patients because you kind of get a sense of what other people are doing. Um, and that, uh, with the guidance of a, a certified diabetes educator and a, and a uh, registered dietitian, can be very helpful in terms of trying to figure out how to work things into your life that are going to help you uh, prevent uh, yourself from getting true diabetes. 
So the American Diabetes Association, that's one that I can, even I can remember. It's diabetes.org. Correct. That's their website as right. well. Thank you for your call, Deborah. Uh, um, here's a question from the text line, Laura. It says, uh, question for the doctor, can adding fasting days eliminate prediabetes? That is a very uh, topical question. It's hot, isn't it? Very hot. Oh, I hear all about fasting diets and the like. Very hot, and um, and uh, yes, and we we've been uh, we've been talking a lot about this in our in our clinic and in our in our conferences and um, both at Hennepin and at the University of Minnesota. It's been a big a big topic because there's starting to starting to be some pretty good evidence that. Uh, what you're t- referring to is intermittent fasting. So this is going for periods of time without eating, um, drinking water certainly, but without and and non-caffeinated beverages. But um, we are starting to see that um, it probably matters. The the uh, it 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 may matter the the time interval in which you consume your calories may have a big impact on all of this sugar metabolism that's going on in your body. There's some evidence now that if you fast for either a period of time, 15, 18 hours in a day, or you alternate days of fasting, so entire days where you eat and then days that you don't eat, that that can improve your body's resistance to insulin. So we talked in the beginning about the body not recognizing or using insulin well. And something about the fasting seems to kind of reset the body's reception or ability to kind of use the insulin that your body produces. So this is not a good treatment for type 1 diabetes. That oh, my is, gosh, no. That is not the case. Um, but we know that intermittent fasting does lead to late weight loss. We also know that that helps prevent diabetes. And there's also some benefit to both blood pressure and risk for that cardiovascular disease. And so um, intermittent fasting is definitely gaining a lot of traction. I'm not doing that. Okay. <laughs> Dave's not I, doing it. I looked over at Denny and said, I'm not doing that. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways to, to do, it, <laughs> to do it. it. It does sound quite challenging. I mean, I think that one thing that we try to avoid in our approach to sort of diabetes is to not get too excited about things that are trending because um, most things kind of circle back and sort of show that maybe they were not the kind of holy grail that we thought. Um, And I think the longest term diet approach that has been just proven to just be the most beneficial is really the Mediterranean diet. So it's kind of like what you're you know, grandma told you is just eat a lot of vegetables and try not to eat a lot of fat and, um, right. you know, all these things kind of do are, are unfortunate, but they, they really do sort of preserve health. Better I, than I've even heard that. If your grandma hasn't heard of the ingredient on the package, don't eat it. Right. <laughs> That's what I have heard. Or move, move to Cannes or Marseille and live in the south of France. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Leonard has been waiting there in Burnsville. Thanks, Leonard. What is your question? Well, I have had diabetes for 69 years, type 1, of course. Wow. And my eyes have uh, decided they're not going to function the way they should. So about a year and a half ago, they started going south. Now uh, I've had surgery on my left eye, and I'm taking steroids in there. And those steroids drive my blood sugar, and I think it's my liver. They drive it crazy. Yeah. 
That's really common. The steroids do that. They sure do. Uh, Leonard, are you, are you taking – the steroids are in the drops? It drops in my eyes, yes. Mm-hmm. And the one I'm taking now is uh, fluoromethylene. Mm-hmm. So are, have you had some improvement in your vision since you had the surgery? Uh, it's going to be very slow because with a cornea transplant. Oh, okay. Uh, well, first of all, um, thank you for calling because I, I, I think very few people could really appreciate or understand how amazing it is that you have had type 1 diabetes for 69 years. So thank you for, for calling and just uh, sharing that with us. I hope that you have received the, the 50-year insulin medal. I'm assuming you have. There's an insulin medal? Yes. I don't know if Leonard got that. I know. Leonard, did you? Leonard, are you there? I got that several years ago. Right, right, almost 20 years ago. That's amazing. Um, so steroids, for sure, are a culprit in raising blood sugar. And, in fact, um, that, is one of, that is one of the reasons that when, you, when, when, when people are treated with steroid medicines, which are used for a host of different conditions. So steroids are, are kind of a necessary evil in a lot of, a lot of medical conditions. You're getting it through your eye drops, which is obviously needed for your, for your eye condition. And it, it turns out that the, the steroid that are in things like eye drops or even topical skin ointments or sometimes the kind that people uh, get injected into their joints for different arthritis or types of arthritis or different conditions for that, they, they really can all raise blood sugar. None of it is as potent or powerful as when you have to take um, steroids in the form of pills. So things like prednisone or hydrocortisone or medicines that you might get treated in pill form. But even so, you're, it sounds like the, the steroids are getting absorbed into your, your body. And what the, you're right, exactly right, Leonard, that it's making your, your liver kind of inappropriately churn out some extra sugar. And that's making it, I'm sure, much more difficult to control your blood sugar. Um, Presumably, you 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 hopefully have some some tools with your dosing on your insulin to kind of account for that, um, and so that's that's something we frequently kind of see it, you know t- talk to patients about is how to adjust their insulin doses when they're on a medication like like steroids to kind of account for that added um, problem with uh, with with both blood sugar production and more resistance to that insulin that you take. Laura, there's a question exactly on this topic that came in while you were talking from someone with psoriatic arthritis. It says, I've been on prednisone for two years for my psoriatic arthritis, fairly low dose, 10 milligrams for a year, and then 7.5. I recently learned I'm pre-diabetes. Does the prednisone cause it, or if I stop taking it, will it go back? Will I chance of my numbers going back to normal? That's tricky. Uh, it, if and you, we just have a minute or two yep. now. Prednisone can cause uh, can cause prediabetes and diabetes, frankly. So um, the fact that you've been on it now, the steroids now for two years, uh, may have sort of pushed you over into a point where it may be difficult to kind of go backwards on that or go revert back to sort of normal blood sugar levels. Um, it, it sort of depends on how long you're going to stay on that steroid. I mean, if this is kind of a permanent treatment for you, it's probably unlikely that you're going to go back to normal blood sugar levels. But it's definitely something that, I, again, I would pro- probably in that range, you know, consider even whether medication such as metformin might be a good idea for you. Okay, in like one minute, we're going to go through a few text messages. We're going to the lightning round, Laura. If a person has pancreatic cancer, could they take out the pancreas and live on insulin? 
They could, yep. So your pancreas produces insulin, but it also produces a lot of other important um, enzymes and things. So there's other things that you have to also replace, but insulin is the hormone. And yes, you could you live without your pancreas with, with taking insulin shots. One more. It says, I'm t- in 2000, our 14-year-old son was diagnosed with type 1. Siblings and parents are not diabetic, but I wonder what you found regarding familial relationships in type 1. Right. So type 1 diabetes has some definite genetic implications. Um, it sounds like uh, your son may be the kind of index case, meaning he's the, the first one in the family. Often there's a predisposition, a genetic predisposition for other autoimmune diseases. So there's a lot of other um, autoimmune um, diseases like hypothyroidism, Addison's disease, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, things that also may run in the family. And that may have an indication uh, for why, you know, he had a genetic predisposition for it. Okay, maybe the last one, can people with prediabetes feel weak at times? Right. Most people with prediabetes are asymptomatic. However, depending on how long they've had it and whether their blood sugars are starting to become worse or rising, um, some of the symptoms can include weakness, increased thirst, increased urination, fatigue, headaches, weight gain. Um, so all of those can be, can be signs of too much sugar in your blood. Okay. I, I lied. One more quick one. When, when should I start seeing an endocrinologist versus my primary care physician? I've had diabetes type 2 for 11 years. Yeah, that all depends. If you have a, most, most patients with type, with type 2 diabetes are, see, see their regular doctor. And that is great because if your regular doctor can help you with uh, you know, advice on diet and exercise, what medications are appropriate for you, then stick with your regular doctor. If you are needing to take multiple daily injections of insulin, you should probably be seeing an endocrinologist. Dr. Laura Lefebvre, thank you. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Dave. It's been great to be here. If you want to see Laura or any of her colleagues in the endocrine clinic, Dr. Bumalab, Dr. Fish, Dr. Kempinen, Dr. Estrada, Kathy O'Brien, Go call 612-873-6963. It'll be an open line show next week here on News Talk 830 WCCO.